We're turning this evening to 1 Thessalonians, the first chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's read this entire chapter together, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's hear the Lord's word. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. God will add his blessing to that reading from his word for his own name's sake. Can we bow for a word of prayer, please? Let's all together seek the Lord for help tonight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thou hast taught us to pray. Thou hast taught us throughout the word of God how dependent we are upon help from heaven. And we acknowledge now as we commence the preaching of thy holy word that it's going to take another preacher to do anything worthwhile tonight, and that won't be this vessel of clay. It'll be Christ himself preaching by his Spirit. And we pray that will be our experience. We want, Lord, in one sense, to back off completely. We want, Lord, to simply be a mouthpiece, a vessel through which the Lord himself speaks to those whom he's gathered in. We pray it will be a word alive with the power of God. We're not looking, Lord, not wanting to preach in the energy of the flesh because it always profits nothing. It only harms. But my Lord, when thou dost give that unction of the Holy Ghost, then advancement is made. Then the Lord Jesus is exalted and thy people are helped. So come, O Christ, we pray and feed the sheep for which thou didst give thy blood. In Christ's name we ask all these things. Amen and amen. In Acts chapter 16, you'll find the beginning of the record of Paul's second missionary journey, a journey that was, in essence, the beginning of the evangelization of Europe. Having been forbidden twice by the Holy Ghost to take the gospel to Asia, Paul has a vision in the night of a man in Macedonia calling upon him to come over and help them. And in obedience to that heavenly vision, Paul, along with Silas, Timothy, and Luke, the beloved physician, set their foot on a long, narrow stretch of land known today as northeastern Greece, and they make their way to the city of Philippi. It was here that the Lord opened the heart of Lydia, 
to the gospel. Lydia, the seller of purple, opened up her heart. And she and her entire household believed and were baptized. It was also here in Philippi that Paul cast a demonic spirit of divination from a girl, and that angered her masters who saw that, the Scripture says, their hope of gain was gone. They lost a moneymaker. As a result of that event, Paul and Silas were beaten with rods and imprisoned. Remember the Paul in Second Corinthians chapter 11 speaks of beaten thrice with rods. This was one of those times that he was beaten with rods and thrown in prison. Of course, you know what happened there at midnight. God sent an earthquake. The prison doors were opened. And the Philippian jailer was converted on the spot. After being released from prison by the magistrates, Paul and Silas made their way to Lydia's house where they encouraged them and they uh, compelled them as new believers to cleave to the Lord. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and leave Philippi, leaving Luke behind to assist this newly formed church in Philippi, a church Paul would afterward call my joy and crown. Leaving Philippi, they would have traveled one of, one of Rome's most famous military roads called the Ignatian Way. This road took them first to Amphipolis and then to Apollonia. Why they just passed through those towns and did not stay to preach the gospel, well, we, we can only speculate about that. But as you study the book of Acts, you'll find that Paul employed, in all of his missionary endeavors, he employed a certain methodology on just where he went to preach the gospel. And that methodology being to go to the large cities. He saw that as the best way to disseminate the gospel throughout the regions. The more people you can reach, the more they'll go out and tell others. That was his approach. At any rate, 100 miles down this road from Philippi, they finally come to the city of Thessalonica. Of all the cities and towns on the Ignatian Way, Thessalonica was the largest. And it was the most influential city. As was his manner, he heads for the Jewish synagogue and preached the gospel for three consecutive Sabbath days, Jewish Sabbath days. He's in the synagogues preaching the gospel three weeks in a row on the Jewish Sabbath. Paul enjoyed a measure of success in Thessalonica, not so much among the Jews but among the Gentiles who had attached themselves to the synagogue. We read that of the devout Greeks, a great multitude were converted. A great multitude. Now you can understand that did not sit well with the Jews. They made a great uproar in that city, and for their own Paul and Silas and Timothy were sent away by night. Nevertheless, a flourishing church was established in Thessalonica. The missionaries make their way next to Berea, where the, the gospel goes to a people who were more noble than the Thessalonians. Why? Because they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether what Paul was telling them and was alleging about Jesus Christ was actually biblical, if it was true or not. They were noble, more noble 
those in Thessalonica, those unbelieving Jews, had no time to go and check things out to find out if what Paul was actually saying was the truth. But in Berea, they were a different lot. They didn't take anything for granted. Just because a man came in and said, I'm an apostle of God, you better listen to my message. Well, we'll find out if what you're saying is the truth or not. You know, that indicates how serious you are about wanting to know what the truth actually is. Never take anything because I've said it. You better find out for yourselves. Is that man speaking the truth? Can't go on your gut feelings. You've got to know from an infallible source that what's being taught is actually the truth. Things were going quite well in Berea until those unbelieving Jews from Thessalonica heard about what was going on in Berea and they came and stirred up trouble. Silas and Timothy stay behind, but Paul is sent away, and then he goes to Athens. He enjoys, comparatively speaking, little success at Athens. That's the occasion where he meets with all of the philosophers on Mars Hill, where they gather together to just talk about, you know, philosophy. What's the latest he didn't meet with much success there. He preaches to these superstitious Athenians who had a, a, a figure for every god they could think of. And of course, that's where Paul pointed to the one called the unknown god. That's the one I want to preach to you about because you don't know him. While here at Athens, Paul sends for Silas and Timothy to join him. We know from his first letter to the Thessalonians that at least Timothy meets up with him in Athens. But Paul eventually sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out about the state of affairs of the church there. He's concerned about it because he understands the kind of trouble that can come from persecution. Trials and troubles of all sorts. Well, Timothy makes his way back to Thessalonica. Paul goes on to Corinth, another large, large seaport city, to take the gospel to a very deeply immoral city, rife with temple prostitutes, whose sandals had a mark upon them as they would look for the sailors to follow them that would say, follow me. Follow me to the temple to fulfill your lusts and pleasures. It was a wicked, wicked city. It's no wonder that he began his preaching here. He says himself, in weakness, fear, and in much trembling. He had met with much to discourage him ever since Thessalonica. But, but then who arrives in Corinth? None other than Silas and Timothy. It's, it's apparent as you read between the lines that Paul was down. He wasn't enjoying that kind of headway and progress that he had known before as he goes to Athens and then to Corinth pagan city. But Silas and, Timothy, Silas and Timothy arrive on the scene and they bring news that has thrilled his heart. It is news that this church and Thessalonica, which he was really concerned about, is going on with God. Yes, they were being persecuted by these unbelieving Jews, but they were abounding in love and faith. It's because of what he heard from Silas and Timothy that he's compelled by the Holy Spirit to write them this first letter. And what I want to draw your attention to this evening 
something he says at the beginning of verse 2 and why he says it. We give thanks to God always for you all. We give thanks to God always for you all. It is a common greeting in Paul's epistles to the churches to whom he wrote, with the exception of the Galatian churches. He does not utter that. We give thanks to God for you. But it wasn't, as while it was a very common thing that Paul included in his letters to the churches, it wasn't an empty expression of nicety. He wasn't just being polite and, well, that's what you write at the beginning of letters. He really meant it. He was telling the truth when he said, we thank God always for you all. And in each case, he uses that expression in every epistle. There are valuable lessons to learn. What I want us to look at this evening, and possibly next Lord's Day evening, is Paul's gratitude to God for the church at Thessalonica. Paul's gratitude to God for the church at Thessalonica. And just see what we can learn for ourselves and for our church about his gratitude for that work. First, let's look at the reality of his gratitude to God, the reality of it. It was real. You don't have to read very far before you find out that this church was a a continual source of joy to Paul's heart. Unlike the Galatian churches were, were, were a great source of grief to the Apostle Paul, this church in Thessalonica was a source of continual joy. After his traditional salutation, Paul tells them how much they had been on his heart. And you know the way that you can tell when anyone was on the heart of the Apostle was what you find out that they were in his prayers, if they were on his heart. I mean, if you were on Paul's heart, you could be dead on sure you were in his prayers. If you're on his heart, you're in his prayers. Not on the heart, not in his prayers. It's a great lesson for us all. When we say to someone, you've been on my heart, the follow-up question that must be asked, have I been in your prayers? Because if you're really on the heart, you're in the prayers. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Those are all just tied together. It's in one breath. He couldn't think of them being on his heart without telling them, listen, here's how you can know you're on my heart all the time because I'm praying for you all the time. That's a tremendous statement, I believe. Always, always thanking God for the people of that church. That word making mention, it means remembrance remembering you. Yes, I remember you in my heart, but I also remember you continually in my prayers. I don't forget about you. He never failed to remember the people of this church at the throne of grace. that's, That's quite something, you know. Remember we read in 2 Corinthians 11 about after listing all the things, all the troubles, the beatings and being stoned and the shipwreck being in the deep. Beside all this, the care of all the churches. That was a burden he lived with. And he prayed for them because they were on his heart. It must have taken Paul some amount of time to go through his prayer list. Must have taken a great deal of time. 
Years ago, when I had been in Orlando for just maybe a year, not even perhaps, I had the joy of welcoming Dr. Paisley to open up the, the church building we had renovated. And he was there to preach for me. I, I, I met him at the airport with the Reverend John Greer. And he said, uh, Brother John, his Ulster accent, I want you to know, you're in my prayer list and I pray for you every day. He had some prayer list. And he wasn't lying. Take some time to do that, you know. Paul said, I always remember you in prayer. He must have believed in the power of prayer. He must have believed that it wasn't a waste of time to take these churches and these people of Christ to the throne of grace. He didn't believe for one moment it was a vain exercise. I, I think that here's a very practical and very good lesson that we, we all need to learn and relearn, the lesson that we should always be thanking God for each other. It's easy to forget that. To forget to thank God for each other. In other words, Paul believed that he ought to thank God, that it was right to thank God for these believers. He didn't take them for granted. He saw that they were a church, that they were... They were an assembly of Christ's people for which he should thank God and for which he should thank God continually. Not only when they did good and not only because they were going through trouble, but even in the smooth times, he believed it was, a, it was necessary that he remembered them continually before the throne of grace. You see, it's all, it's, it's very easy to begin to take the Lord's people, fellow believers, for granted. We too easily forget that Christians are a rarity in this world. They really are a rarity. Take them away, and we would find we have a very hard lot indeed to go it alone. I don't know what it would be like not to have Christian brothers and sisters. Forget about for a moment to preach to. That's, that's one disaster I can't, don't even want to entertain. But not to have Christian brothers and sisters that I can fellowship with. can't imagine what life would be like all alone. Say a word to some of you in the webcast audience, perhaps you're listening tonight because you have no church. There's, there's no place for you to go and your circle of believing friends is very small. You would understand how Paul looked upon that absolute necessity to have these brothers and sisters in Christ and why he didn't take them for granted. In one sense, it's true that we need nothing in this world but Christ. If we have Christ, all is well. As we sang tonight, bless the Lord, I have Jesus. Yet in another very real sense, we need each other in the church. I have no hesitancy to tell you I need you. I need your fellowship. It might sound like pride, but I have no qualms about telling you that you need me. 
as much as I need you. Because we need each other. That's how the Lord has made the church. There's a reason the Word of God tells us, commands us, that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. There's a reason that is included in the Scripture. It does not bode well. It does not bode well when we ignore that and forsake the assembling of ourselves together. The old Scottish illustration of this need that Christians have of each other is very much to the point. Uh, I'm sure you've read it or heard about it somewhere along your walk with the Lord that when a piece of coal, you'll understand why it's an old Scottish illustration, when a piece of coal is in the hearth and the other coals are burning, it burns as well. But once that piece of coal falls out of the hearth onto the stone ground, it very quickly the fire goes out. It just dies. It needs that closeness of other coals to stay warm. You see, the fact of the matter is you can't go it alone. You just can't. You weren't made that way. Why, why in the world do you think that Jesus Christ described the church as members of one body? Members needing each other. That the members cannot do it themselves alone. All the members are necessary. Bear with me for a little bit on this illustration. This comes to mind. Most of you know I've had surgery back at the end of March. And this, it was a great surgery for about 10 days, but it's been giving me fit just these Shooting pains, you know, up up to my hand and really waking up in the middle of the night with it. I just found that it's going to take probably four months for that to all heal. And this member, you know, it, it can be really a pain. But I need it. It's my right hand and I'm right hand. I, I really need my right hand. Even though it's a pain, it's still a member of the body. And there will be Christians who will be a pain. But you need them. I'm sure I've been a pain to you at times, but you still need me. I still need you. We're members of this body. The hands can't tell my feet, I don't need you. The eyes can't say to my ears, oh, I can get along without you. If we lose any of our members, and there's been somewhat of a loss with my degree, things I just can't do yet... We, we really miss it. I really miss being able to do certain things, you know, like take an axe and swing it without being in pain. I, I, getting a strong grip on something that I could have prior to the surgery, I miss that. You see, you, you, you think you're okay until it's taken away. And all that, is it not true that we still take these members of our body for granted until one of them is taken away? Then you miss them. And so we should thank God for each other, even as Paul thanked God for these believers in the church at Thessalonica. Not once in a while, but continually. And I believe that if we will do this, it certainly goes a long, long way in guarding the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
I can't create a bond of peace. That's already been done by the Holy Ghost, but I am to guard it. I'm to protect it. I'm in to endeavor to promote it. Guarding, keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It'll go a long, long way if we will but do that. You just get on your knees and begin to thank God for your brothers and sisters in the church and see what happens in your own heart and life. Just begin to remember them continually in your praying and see what that does for your attitude toward the people of God. Just thank the Lord for them. Matter of fact, that would apply to any Christian relationship. Husbands and wives, brothers and sisters. I, I believe that much of the troubles between believers begin when they fail to thank God for each other and to pray for each other. Oh, you can begin to pray for a brother or a sister that is like my right arm, a pain. But what you end up doing, if that's all you do, what you end up doing is simply describing why this is a pain to you. And you really just want rid of the pain. But that doesn't happen when you begin to thank God for them. It's very hard to hold any kind of resentment or bitter spirit towards a fellow Christian when you're praying for them and thanking God for them in your heart. It's very hard to do that. And I wonder, I wonder if, if I'm just envisioning this in my mind, the Lord's people, yeah, I need to thank God for brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. And it comes down to that place when they have to do it, and it's like I, I, I just can't get this out. And as long as that's the case, there's going to be trouble. Do you thank God? for your brothers and sisters in Christ. All of them. Whether or not you think they're a pain in your neck. Whether or not they're not what you think they ought to be. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ thanks his Father for every one of his people. He views them as a gift given to him by his father a gift of love I thank the old father thou hast shown this truth to babes I thank thee for them our problem is that when we see the faults of other believers we don't go further and turn the faults into prayer requests. We just complain. We get frustrated. We find it easier to actually criticize and make ourselves look good when we see their sins and their blemishes. But we will do ourselves and the church and the cause of Jesus Christ a whole lot of good if we'll but take each other to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, thank you for brother so-and-so. Thank you for sister so-and-so. Yes, Lord, I confess, they say things or they do things that, that really grieve me. 
But then again, Lord, I am sure there's no doubt in my mind that I say things and I do things that grieve you. Who in the world am I to find fault and point fingers at when I've got plenty of things wrong with me? Don't, don't you know? I'm learning something about this operation. I wouldn't have learned it otherwise. I really value my right hand in a way I didn't before. For all the pain, I value this member like I have never before. And I can't wait till the four months is up. And I'm just praying that what this doctor said is going to be true. That I'm going to be pain free in four months. But you know, I wouldn't have had that experience if I hadn't had the surgery. So even when a fellow believer, as they say, gets up your nose, really annoys you, you can thank the Lord for that. That's teaching you something that you would not have learned without that experience. We just want everything nice and hunky-dory. Everything just smooth sailing. Everybody's smiling. Everybody happy. Well, that's not how it is in the real world because we're sinners. And we've got a load of problems. It's learning to live with that graciously and accepting people right where they are and praying for them continually because that's where God changes people in the place of prayer. The reason is my second and final point tonight. The reason for his gratitude to God. Verse 3 gives us the immediate for his continual prayer of thanksgiving to God for this church, and that's the presence of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. He thanks them for the work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope in Christ. He's now describing this church in Thessalonica. And he's thanking God for those three things, their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope in Christ. What pastor, I ask you, what pastor, what missionary wouldn't be filled with gratitude to God if he saw those things abounding in the lives of God's people or on the mission field? What pastor or missionary wouldn't be thrilled? Lord, I thank you. Words been brought back to me by Timothy and Silas. You're abounding in your, their work of faith and labor of love and their patience of hope in Christ. This, this, this church in Thessalonica accomplished that which was almost unbelievable. And we perhaps will get to that next week. It's incredible what they did where they were in their walk with God. I want you to remember who they were. They were a fledgling church. Hadn't been around a long time. A fledgling church, newly established. These were new converts to Jesus Christ. They hadn't been saved for 30, 40, 50 years. There was still so much they needed to learn about God and about the gospel. So much they needed to learn about grace, doctrines that had to be taught. And they had been saved, consider for a moment their background, they had been saved, you learn from verse 9, from a life that was steeped in idolatry. And that was, in this day, a very wicked and immoral lifestyle. I mean, these, these were diehard pagans, and the Lord saved them. But oh, they had baggage. They had baggage. 
And yet Paul is able now to speak of how they were abounding in their work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope. Do you wonder why he's so happy? I'd be happy. Work. Let's look at the three things. Work. The work of faith. We get our word energy from this word work. Energeo is the verb energy. It speaks of activity, of effort, of doing, of acting. In other words, this was an active church. It was a very busy church. It was a working church. If there was a work of faith, this was not a church that was sitting idly by in apathy doing nothing. What actual work of faith was Paul referring to here? He doesn't immediately reveal what he means by that phrase, but I think God did that for good reason. If he had been specific, if there had been some specific work of faith that he had listed here, it's like the thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. It was something, but he doesn't tell us. If it had been specific here, this work of faith had been described, many Christians, I think, would have limited their work to the things subscribed by Paul or circumscribed by Paul, and really not think about doing much else for the Lord. Well, I've done the work. You know, it's, 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 it's like a father telling a son, and you would have to have some kind of an agricultural background to appreciate this, but I want you to go out in the field today. Now, if you hear that, and you're not really interested in a whole lot of work, you're not a happy camper. It's wide open. Well, there's all kinds of work to be done in the field today. What do you mean? Give me a restricted list and I'll do those things. But don't leave it wide open, Dad. Well, there's yard work to be done. Yeah, there's all kinds of yard work to be done. Okay, go to it. If it's just cut the grass, okay, that's good. No, he, he doesn't limit it. It's some work of faith. But it's active. Having said that, it would appear from verse 10 that there is a special reference to their sounding out the word. In whatever ways they did it, the sounding out of the word of the gospel, their work of faith, labor, labor of love. That word labor, you know what that? It comes from a word that means beating. It has the idea of sorrow connected with it, so it speaks of the kind of labor that is intense. Laborious, hard labor. This wasn't a walk in the park. So, in other words, this was not simply a church that was caring for the sick, comforting the dying, feeding the hungry. They were toiling in all of their labor. It was hard, difficult work that they were engaged in. This was a kind of blood, sweat, and tears labor. It'd wear you out. There was hardship involved in their labor. It means it was sacrificial. Not only was it sacrificial labor, but it was sustained labor. They kept on laboring. And of course, it was the hardest kind of labor, which is spiritual. I find it a whole lot easier, a whole lot easier to come and spend an hour, an hour and a half 
working on this church property than I do spending an hour, an hour and a half in prayer on my knees. It's a whole lot easier. Spiritual labor is the most difficult kind of labor. It is labor. He speaks of their patience. The patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The word simply means endurance. These believers had been suffering persecution at the hands of their own countrymen, but also from the Jews. That word patience means to remain under. In other words, they didn't try to get out from under the load, from under the labor, from under the strain, and from under the persecution. They weren't trying to find a way to get out of it all to escape it, but they bore up the burden in the heat of the day. They weren't quitters. You know, they weren't like, you know, one little hiccup and they're ready to quit. Nope, that's not these young, young, young converts. Not seasoned veterans of the faith. I I get why Paul was so thankful to God for them. No no doubt they thrilled his heart. Wouldn't you, if, if, if you were in Paul's shoes, be thrilled over these believers? But there's something else here you don't want to miss. It's important. We may mistakenly put the focus on their work and their labor and their patience. But Paul writes something that not only tells us why he gives thanks to God for them, but just why we should be encouraged by this church's grace in Thessalonica and not be discouraged by it. Because you might well sit there and say, man, (laughs) I'm so far away from that, I'm light years from that. Here they were, young converts. Oh, man, I'm, I'm just a mess. Paul says, your work of faith your labor of love and your patience of hope. In other words, all the work that they had done for the Lord was done by faith. All of this sacrificial toil they had been formed had been done by love. And the reason they had endured and remained under was because of hope. Faith, love, and hope are what? They are graces of the Holy Spirit. Graces of God. They didn't work those things up. Given to them by the Lord. And let me tell you, he hasn't changed. He's still the same God who gives the same grace and the same love and the same hope to his people. I think the devil's done a number on this generation. He has convinced us that we can't do anything, that we can't be anything. We have somehow been consigned to a second-rate Christian life. It's utter nonsense. It's a lie. Faith, love, and hope come from God. It was faith at work in their hearts that produced that activity in that church. It was the love for Christ. The love. Why do we love him? Because he first loved us. It was that love for Christ and for each other that brought them this ability to toil on. And it was their hope in Christ that enabled them to endure all the suffering. However hard it get. I mean, folks, Paul was wise. He was not a man given to fear. 
but he was really deeply concerned. Prior to hearing from Timothy and Silas, he was deeply concerned because he, he knew the power of Satan. He knew how frail and weak human flesh is. But he hears the news. Paul, they're doing great. I can't imagine how, how happy he must have felt when he heard that news. You don't want to miss the encouragement. We may lament our little work, our little labor, and our little patience. But the thing we must not do is to feel that we, as a church, cannot work and toil and endure. We must never think that. The same grace and the same God belongs to us that belong to them. The thing we need to do is the need to recognize the thing that's lacking and then bring that need to God the God of all grace and ask him Lord this vessel is empty would you please fill it fill it Paul's gratitude to God for that church. The Lord write his word. Hearts for his name's sake, we bow our heads in prayer and seek the Lord. Lord, do we we understand in our own finite way that thou art holy. Separate from sin. Yet thou hast, through Christ's blood, suffering, death, and resurrection, brought us into a place of communion with thee, of acceptance. We know that thou wilt therefore never reject us. We therefore pray that thou wilt come and fill the empty vessels this church certainly challenges us. Lord, we want, we desire, we pray to be useful. A church abounding in these graces. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen and amen.